David Spada is a successful attorney whose dream was to become a sports talk show host. Elliot Harris is a Chicago sports columnist who wanted to expand his media presence. In the next hour, they combine their talents and love of sports and women by interviewing former professional athletes and lovely ladies on sports and torts. But keeping the boys out of trouble isn't always easy because when David and Elliot are together, they have more fun than should be legal. Welcome to another edition of Sports and Torts on TalkZone.com with David Spada and Elliot Harris. I am Elliot Harris. We have a great show today, if I may say so myself, especially if you're a baseball fan and have a, a slight sense of history. And particularly for Chicago Cubs fans, we have Lenny Marillo, who played on the 1945 Cubs team, the last Cubs team to, to be in the World Series. And Lenny is the lone remaining survivor from that team. We also have a pitcher that uh, some Cubs fans may remember, a guy by the name of Ernie Brolio, who was traded for a fellow Lou Brock. First up, Lenny Marillo. So, Lenny, you grew up in Massachusetts. Were you a Red Sox fan growing up? I, I grew up in uh, East Boston, which is just outside of Boston. So did you follow the Red Sox? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Try to see as many games as they could. Oh, yeah. I'll see any baseball game that, that's around, anyone. Do you have a favorite Red Sox back then? Oh, yeah. They were all my favorite players. <laughs> if they were ball players, they were favorites of mine. Uh, okay. You grew up in an Italian family. I'm Italian, too. What did your parents think about ball players? What did the Italians think about ball players? What did your parents think when you said you wanted to be a baseball player? Well, she just, they used to say, you, the first thing you got to do is get yourself a job to bring home some money. You, you didn't mean to think to the family that you brought a little money home to help. I was one of 13 children. What happened when Wrigley gave you your first contract? How did that go come about? Well, when hey, Mr. Wrigley asked me to come out to the Chicago to meet him, and that was a treat itself, just to meet the Mr. Wrigley, the owner of a major league ball club. That in itself was something. Uh, but anyway, just a trip to Chicago was meant, meant so much. How, how did, back then, how did they hear about you in Chicago? Well, just to see Chicago and uh, everything about Chicago was um, about 18 times the size of what I thought it was. You know, that was a big, big city. Uh, Ralph Wheeler was a Boston sports writer, and uh, I, was a, I was really what you call a protege of this Mr. Wheeler, who was a sports writer for the Boston Herald, but he also... Uh, ran the Suburban League. He was the head of the Suburban League. He had charge of the Suburban League. So he, he knew all the ball players around. And if he saw a kid that uh, he particularly cared for, he made sure that that kid was taken care of. And I happened to be one of them. How much did you get when you signed with the Cubs? How much did I get? Yes. Uh, it wasn't a matter of, uh, of money. It was just a matter of getting started in baseball. Yeah. What did your parents say when they found out you signed the contract? Well, hey, hey, uh, 
I was always a, I was always a big thing to my parents, but baseball was just secondary to them. They just wanted to be sure that I was making my way in life. And when I got a chance to play baseball, that was a big, big thing. From, from then on, the, the word in the house was, uh, in Italian, tapa means go to work. But with me, it was not tapa. Get out and play ball. It's the only way to make a living. When I came home with a little bonus, a little money, just for playing a ball player, they started to kick the younger ones out of the house. Get out and play. Being one of 12 children, you know, that was a break for the other kids. <laughs> yeah. how, how young did you start playing baseball, and, and when did you know you were good? I, uh, I, I, I can... I can remember playing baseball the day I was born with Byron Street. That was our ball field. Byron Street in East Boston, which is not too far from the Boston airport. But we were always playing. The cops used to patrol Byron Street just to, hey, hey, kids, you got to let the traffic go by. You can't, you can't be playing ball all the time. You got to let the traffic go by. <laughs> I see that you uh, met a baseball icon when you were young, Babe Ruth. What was that meeting like? Oh, hey. I'll never forget. I wish I had never saw him because there was this big, fat slob sitting there half naked, and I'm getting a good look, and I said, that's Babe Ruth? <laughs> so I wish the hell I didn't see him. Was he still playing, or was he retired? No, he was, he had just, the Boston Braves had just made a deal for him. To, with the, to play with the Boston Braves uh, because he would be an attraction to bring the fans out just to see him play. Even at this stage, even though he was way out of shape, they bought him at a stage where he was he was all down as a ball player. But uh, just to be in the same area as Babe Ruth, that meant a great deal. Uh, and with the, he still hit a few home runs with the Boston Braves, too. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Were you a bigger Braves fan or a Red Sox fan? Uh, I was a National League fan. National League was a big thing. American League was just another, hey, if you had nothing else to do, you went to American League game. <laughs> that's, that's not exactly the way it was, but that was our attitude. The Boston Braves and Braves Field... Uh, out at Brayfield Ballpark. That was just to be able to walk in the Brayfield in Boston, out in Commonwealth Avenue. That was something. Now, you played in the Cape Cod Baseball League. Now, nowadays, that's where a lot of future pro oh. ball players play. What was it like back in the 30s? And the, the Cape Cod League was the place to go. You got $10 a week, and, and, and you also got your board and room. And I played for the Hyannis, uh, the, what they call it, the town was Bonsable on Cape Cod. I, I played, I played for Bonsable Cape Cod, and we ate at the restaurant. All we did was sign the checks three times a day, and we ate like hell. That, that sounds pretty good during the Depression. It was pretty good, is right. It was damn good. What was Charlie Grimm like? Uh, Charlie Grimm was Charlie Grimm. Why? Well, he was a fun guy. He was a, uh, loose as a goose. 
used to coach third base all the time. I kept very, very busy. Went through a lot of bad things on third base. In other words, if a fella wasn't too good at the, at the plate, uh, he'd go into a faint or something like that. He was always doing something. Like that. The fans loved Kelly Grimm. They loved the guy. What was the 45 World Series like? Well, it was something to be a part of that, boy. Yes, and 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 to, and then to get a paycheck for playing in the 45 series, that was something. I don't know what, how much it got at that time. I think, I think it was $600 we got something like that. But that was a lot of money back in those days. If, did you, when you were in the World Series, did you think you'd make it another year, or you thought there was a one-shot opportunity? Hey, I believe me, as a ball player, we all felt the same way. We all felt that someday we were going to play in the big leagues. I, any kid that played baseball, that was his dream, and that's what he really, really believed in. He was going to be playing in the major leagues. That's why he played. Did you think that uh, the Cubs would be back in it again in 46? Yeah. Would you think that the Cubs would be back in it? I always felt that the Cubs were, you know, the Cubs were a good organization. They they had good leaders, and they were always doing something to make sure that they stayed a good ball club and could only uh, get better as they went along. That was the Cubs organization. What was your roommate like, Phil Cavaretta? Uh Well, you had to know Phil. Uh, he was a hot... He was, uh, uh, I happen to be a Neapolitan uh, Italian. My folks were from Naples. Uh, Phil Cavaretta's folks were from Sicily. They were known as hotheads and hot-tempered, and that was Phil Cavaretta. You had to be very, very careful what you said and what you did around him because he would bite your head off. That was Phil Cavaretta. But that's what made him such a great competitor. And just a young fellow, 17 years old, he was playing in the big leagues. Did you know that? I never... 17 years old and playing in yeah. the big leagues. Yeah, that's pretty incredible. Yeah, it is incredible. And he, he was, Phil, as a first baseman, he was not a big guy. Yeah. He was top 5'10", 5'11", at the tops, and uh, weighed about 160 pounds. And a really little guy. That's why later on, they, they when they got a bigger guy by the name of Heinz Becker to play first base, that's when Phil went to left field. And Phil never had a strong arm, but that's where we played left field. I see that uh, you got a piece of history, a Babe Ruth bat. How did you get that? A fellow, my roommate was a fellow by the name of Don Johnson, my second baseman. And his father was uh, played on the same ball club as Babe Ruth. And when he played with Babe Ruth, he had taken one of Babe Ruth's bats and he kept it. And he gave it to his son, and his son gave it to me. That bat's probably worth more than you earned your whole career with the Cubs. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's a good crack. <laughs> when when the Cubs brought you up uh, in September of 1941, and and you first saw Wrigley Field. What? What, did think, what did you think of the ballpark? Uh, Wrigley Field? Yes, sir. Oh, I, I, there's only there's only one ballpark. That's Wrigley Field. That ivy-covered walls out there. 
Uh, it's beautiful, beautiful. And the neighborhood, the neighborhood itself is it's in a very nice neighborhood of Chicago. I remember the fire station out in left field. The cops were our best fans. Uh, the firemen were our best fans. Now, wait, can you say... fire station in left field. How do you compare Fenway to Wrigley? How do I compare it Fenway with Wrigley? No comparison. Uh, Wrigley. Wrigley, Wrigley Field, you know, the ivy-covered walls out there. Uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful area. Yeah. Now, you recently were back at Wrigley as part of uh, the ballpark's 100th anniversary. What was that experience like? I always, always had a soft spot for Wrigley Field. Uh, it just makes me feel warm all, warm all over. Yeah, yeah. I was out there just recently, and I still, you know, just can't get over the fact that I was part of it. When you started in baseball, there was only white players. There was no black players. How did it change when Jackie Robinson came and started playing with the Brooklyn Dodgers? Oh, well, hey, we were not too tickled about Jackie Robinson coming into baseball, believe me. And I was the one that was supposed to have made it uh, tougher for him to be welcome into baseball because uh, I can remember we had a we we had a good catcher with a great arm and uh, Jackie Robinson looked he, when he got on to his base you know he's going to be stealing second and I oh you always took a big lead off and we used to try to pick him off with him but but uh, our catcher had a great arm and we. We we had a, a a play on, in other words, when I showed part of my body on this side of the base runner, when he could see my body on that seat, that means I'm going to be going for the bag. Just turn around and throw, I'll be there. Well, it worked, and I got the second base, and I waited for, I even had to wait a, a split second for Jackie Robinson to come in. And he used to come in head first. And when he came in head first, I tagged him and I happened to tag him on the face because that was the first thing that came to his, his head, came to the bag. So I, I, and I tagged him exceptionally hard across the face. And he got up with fire in his eyes and ready to tear me apart. And as ready as I was for him, they told me, don't do anything to start what you could start a riot. You could have the south side coming up to the north side and you wouldn't be able to stop it. So you had to be very, very careful. For your career, you hit six home runs. Do you remember them all? <laughs> oh, of course I do. <laughs> I think every ball I ever hit, if, uh, before they went out of the ballpark, I fell flat on my face at first base. Watching the ball go over the fence. Is that how you got the nickname Boots? It had that kind of power, but just to, just to hit a home run was something special. How did you get your nickname Boots? How did I get my nickname Boots? Yes. Well, when, when my oldest son was born, I was very, very busy, uh, busy with my wife in the hospital and so forth and so on. So, uh, but anyway, um, I I was very very busy, and when I when I got back, I got the news that uh, my son my son was born. 
I went out to the ballpark. I was, I must have been very, very tired and didn't have my head into the game. And if they hit me another ball, I would have booted that one. I made that four errors in one inning. And that's where he got his name, Boots. Then you went to go scout for the Cubs. How did that come about? Well, they they just, just kept me on to on the payroll just, just to, you know, because they know that I was always, uh, you know, at ball games and looking for the ball players and so forth. And I, I, I recommended some pretty good ball players that eventually were signed by the Cubs. Who? They they appreciated the fact that I was uh, really loved the game of baseball and was a very, very hard worker, and I had the Chicago Cubs organization in mind. Who was the best player you ever found? Well, the best pitcher, the best player that people remember that I ever signed. I signed a few of them, but the best player, the best player, the easiest throwing guy with a nice, easy motion was six foot three Mo Grabowski from uh, Hartford, Connecticut, right out of college. Mo Grabowski. I remember him. Yeah. I, I remember him as well. He was a yeah. pretty good pitcher. Big Mo. Oh, uh, well, he he still holds uh, uh, an all-time record uh, in, in uh, I, I forget what the record that he holds today. I, I forget just what it is, but uh, the, the most most strikeouts in the next inning game or something like that. Yeah. How come you never became a manager? Well, I, I, never, and I never gave it a thought. I was a player, and I enjoyed being a player. And I like being uh, part of baseball. And, hey, I'm still part of baseball, so what, what, what else do you, what you need? <laughs> You're right. I hey, wanna, I wanna know, I was, did you know Jack Brickhouse? Did he ever, Jack, did he ever he buy a legend? Did he ever buy a meal? <laughs> <laughs> if he did, I would never have forgotten it. <laughs> Jack Brickhouse, yeah. Oh, he's a legend. Grabowski also is remembered by some people for giving up the 3,000th hit to San Musial in 1958. So that, that's oh. how I that's how I remember him. Yeah. Really? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, he was he was a good. He had such a nice easy motion, and he, and that motion of his it was kind of uh, not side arm, but just about three quarter. And when he he kind of Glided into the hitter, and his ball would, would what we call an in shoot, would start about the middle of the plate, would break in. It, oh, it, the hitters never could understand why every ball they hit was hit on the handle of the bat. This ball seemed to be bearing in on them all the time. That was his natural motion. He didn't know why the hell he was so effective, but that's why he was effective. Just that nice, easy motion. You think you were going to have a strike, and the ball was always inside. You know, my father always had made three barrels of wine a year. And there wasn't an Irishman in that neighborhood that wasn't a friend of the family's. They were always making uh, an excuse to come visit, because the first thing any uh, visitors would come to visit uh, my mother or my father or any one of us, the first thing, we were sent down to the basement to fill up the jug of wine and put it on the table. 
there was always a glass of my father's wine, and he made the best wine that could, you could possibly drink. What? My my grandfather came to live with us later on in life. We went to Italy, brought him over to this country, and he lived with us. And he, he made a ritual of having his glass of wine with every meal. And my mother would pour it for him. She always sat between my he always sat between my mother and father. It was my grandfather. His name was Giovanni John, and uh, uh, he was he, he was great to have living with us because he was a lot of fun. And we used to tease the hell out of him, just hitting him with bread crumb with a breadcrumb. Just he was going to uh, have his glass of wine. We hit him with about. Uh, different breadcrumbs from different parts of the kitchen table, and he'd make up that he was angry at hell at us. But but it was always having dinner, always having fun having dinner. Who stomped the grapes? Who stomped them? <laughs> now what you hear about that? They, they say you can you can tell an Italian by looking at his feet. At the, <laughs> his feet are purple. They're Italian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. no we never had to do that. <laughs> Who is the, we had we we had great plants all over that big piece of land that we had there in East Boston and when it was uh when it was time in the fall to pick the grapes, we had more help to help us because we also uh complimented the grapes we picked from the yard I don't know how many bushels we got from that, but we all went to, to the freight yards over in Charlestown, and we would order maybe 300 bushels of grapes to make what we actually uh, would make three barrels of, of uh, the best best wine that you could drink. Uh, I still have the, my father's wine press that you they used then. Do you still make it? Do you or your sons make it? No, I don't use it, but I still have it as a memento. I have it right in my dining room. Dining room. <laughs> Who was the best player you ever saw play? Best ball player? Yes. Uh, there's, there's so many good ball players. Uh, I, 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 if, if I had some time to think about it, I could tell you, but there were so many that I knew that were outstanding ball players. Good ones. Okay. Yeah. And Moon, my roommate, Phil Cameretta, was as, was as good as they come, and he was not a big guy. What about the... He was the... a left-hander all the way. He was a Sicilian, and he was right from Chicago, lived, lived right near uh, the ballpark in Chicago, and uh, he was he was playing in the, in the big leagues when he was 17 years old. What about DiMaggio? Joe DiMaggio? Yes. Yeah, Phil Cabrera was a big, bigger than me than Joe DiMaggio. Joe DiMaggio was outstanding, great big guy. He used to stand uh, uh, his feet wide apart, and boy, he could hit. Okay, who was a better ball player, you or your grandson Matt? Oh, well, I wouldn't. I wouldn't even. <laughs> we were two two opposites. He was a left hand hitter. I was a right hand hitter. But no, he was a good ball player. Yeah, and a good athlete, all-around athlete, football player, baseball player. So when, my grandson. So when the Cubs make the World Series, are you going to come back and sing? <laughs> if they ask me to, I'll be there. 
And I'm in good voice any time they ask me to sing. You were ready. You were ready to sing it again uh, last weekend. Out to the ball game, take me out with the crowd. Buy me some peanuts and cracker jacks. I don't care if I ever get back. It's root, root, root for the home team. How's that? Sounds great. Excellent. <laughs> Hope you enjoyed that interview with Lenny Morello. After this brief break, we will be back with Ernie Berlio. You're listening to Sports and Torts on TalkZone.com. Mm-hmm. 